We are, this morning, finishing our study of Hebrews. Now, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 13 there at the end. If you're using the Bible uh, under the seat in front of you, you'll find our passage this morning starting at the bottom of page 1286. 1286. While you're turning there, uh, let me remind you of our plan for the next couple of weeks. Uh, we will start a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes two weeks from today, Lord willing. Um, I've encouraged, or I, I have gotten a couple of these. This is uh, what's called a scripture journal. It's, if you've gotten a copy of it, it's got uh, the text of scripture on one side and just a blank page on the other for taking notes. I have some of these with me. I've got some more coming. If you're interested in that, I definitely encourage you to get a copy from me. Read through Ecclesiastes a couple of times between now and when we start that series. I encourage that because Ecclesiastes is not a familiar book to us, right? It's, it's, the joke is it's part of the clean section of your Bible where the pages are still stuck together. <laughs> Probably not. You're all pretty biblically literate. But still, it's one of those sections that we're not familiar with that we need to do a better job of digging into. So I encourage you to take some time in the next couple of weeks. Read through Ecclesiastes a couple of times. And you're not looking for deep insights or, you know, you just want the big picture. Just get, get somewhat familiar with the overall shape of the book and the feel of the book before we jump in and start digging in and looking at, at the, the details, all right? So that's the plan for the next couple of weeks. Uh, and again, no pressure, you're, you know, there's not gonna be a test at the end, but I do encourage you to, to read ahead a bit. Um, but that's for the future. For today, we're looking at Hebrews one final time together. And as we do, we need the Holy Spirit to speak his word into our hearts. If you're able now, please stand with me while I pray for him to be present with us and then remain standing as I read one last time from Hebrews 13. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word in which you reveal yourself, in which you reveal our hope and everything about it. We pray, Lord, that you would root it deep in our hearts. That as we look at your word this morning, that you would bury that seed deep in us and cause it to sprout up and grow into life in us. We pray that you would be glorified through the reading and the preaching of your word, that your spirit would cause us to understand, restrain our sin, that we would not twist it into meaning what we want it to mean, but would see simply your truth in it. Glorify yourself, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Said I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 20. This is going to be super familiar, right? All right. This is God's word. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you but briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes quickly. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. How does the Lord work in our lives? How is it that he sanctifies us? I know we all agree that he does work in our lives, that he does 
sanctify us, but how? How does he bring that about in our lives? When we think about that sanctification, we often think about what it is that we're doing to participate in that sanctification, in that growth. And we should be. That is an appropriate thing to consider. But rarely do we think about how it is that God actually accomplishes his salvation, that work in us. On the surface, then, in every situation, there are two factors that we must consider that lead to a true understanding and to growth. There is what happens, and then there is how we understand, how we take what happens, how we understand it, and how we process it. How we take what happens, how we understand, how we take what happens goes back to our character, what kind of person we are, what kind of belief we have about life as a whole and about God's work in it. If the whole of life, if the scheme of the whole of life is, in fact, not a scheme at all, but just chaos, if there's no thread of purpose running through it, but only confusion, then our misfortunes, the hard things that happen in every life, are just part of the general mess, are just random stochastic chaos. But if God is, if life is his creation with meaning in the middle of it, then we can hope to discover a pattern which will both give coherence to all of it and help us to interpret any one event as it unfolds. If God is real and he is active, then all of life fits together in some way. I recently read a quote from, it's an older article, 20 or 25 years ago now, uh, but I read this quote, it was talking about those hard moments, uh, particularly how they relate to the local congregation. Uh, for all of its foibles, the local con all of the, the struggles that we have with the local congregation, lousy preaching, sorry, uh, political infighting, uh, self-centered focus, stagnation, gaggle of special interest groups, the, and I'm quoting, pokey local church is still the most fertile environment for spiritual development. In fact, there can be no genuine spiritual progress without a long-term attachment to a pokey local church. Hard things happening, or our disillusionment with our churches, then is not a reason to leave a church, but rather to stay and see what the Lord is doing, what he's accomplishing in those hard things. What I perceive my needs to be, whether that's, you know, I need a church with a more biblical preacher who uses specific examples from real life. Again, I'm sorry, I'm working on it. Or, you know, I need thus and such specific ministry or this specific activity or I want this to happen or whatever it is. When I, what I perceive to be my needs may not actually correspond with what I actually need. My true spiritual needs. Often, in fact, we are not well attuned to our true needs, to our true spiritual needs. And, and let's be honest, often we're completely off. And what we think we want is the actual opposite of what we truly need. But thinking that I know that my I know my true spiritual needs and being constantly on the move, constantly moving from place to place and group to group to meet what I think my needs are is arrogant, it is sinful, and it is so characteristic of our consumeristic culture. Staying put 
as a life practice, digging in to a community, helping make it a deep community, not just being present, but engaging and making it deep, allows God's grace to work on the, as it were, unsanded surfaces of your life, the parts of your life that you'd really rather not talk to about. 17th century French uh, mystic, Christian mystic, Francois Fenelon wrote, slowly you will learn that all the troubles in your life, your job, your health, your inward failings, are really cures to the poison of your old nature. All the troubles in your life, all the things that we think, ah, this is awful, I can't deal with this, they're really the cures that God uses to work out our salvation, to crucify the old man in us. In other words, God uses the hard things in our lives as the means by which he brings us into a deeper knowledge of and trust in him. Those hard things, the things that we would absolutely never under any circumstances choose for ourselves, those things are how he sanctifies. Our passage this morning is obviously very familiar. I use verses 20 and 21 for a benediction probably more often than any other single passage. Uh, So you've probably heard that part at least, those two verses, hundreds of times from this pulpit. And I'm not sorry about that. That's a good thing. But as with much else in this book, there is a depth of connection to the Old Testament that we often miss because we didn't grow up steeped in Old Testament. Remember the situation this congregation is is in. They are predominantly from a Jewish background, steeped in the practice of the Levitical or temple sacrificial system. They had a deep knowledge of the Old Testament and of God's promises in it. But they're also, this congregation is also standing at the beginning of a significant persecution, seeing the resistance in the broader culture ramp up and up, growing stronger. And they're anticipating even greater to come and wondering if maybe it wouldn't be wiser to just go back where it's easy. Return to the temple worship, to the Levitical system, and just do do what's easy and and not be faced with this persecution. Now, I've repeated those two facts often because, as you may have heard me say, context is king. If we miss the context into which the author is writing, we are virtually certain to misunderstand the content of the author's writings. If we miss the context, we're not going to get the content right. These two verses especially are tightly compressed, bringing almost the entirety of the the message of the whole book of Hebrews into this one sentence. Incredibly compressed. Such a summary is an appropriate conclusion. So let's touch on a couple of the main ideas here. To follow the author's logic. Looking at redemption, and specifically the aspect of redemption that we call sanctification, the author touches on three areas. Who does it, how he does it, and what it is that he does. Who, how, and what. We'll get to when and why later. That's you know another conversation. But who, how, and what for this morning. Uh, before we touch on that first idea, a caveat. As much as we talk about sanctification as a, a separate idea, a separate part of redemption from the other parts of redemption that we call justification or adoption or glorification, ultimately that is a mental division to help us comprehend how God does what he does. There is no real sense 
in which they can be separated. Those whom God justified, he adopted. Those whom he adopted, he sanctified. Those whom he sanctified, he glorified. You can't have one and not all of the others. They go together. We talk about them separately as, as mental categories, as intellectual divisions of redemption, just to help us understand the different pieces in the fullness of Christ's work, redeeming a people for, for himself. But they are not ultimately divisible. So understand that as we talk specifically about sanctification here, we are necessarily implying all the parts of redemption together with it. Because not, none of them exist independently or in isolation from the others. If you have one, you have all of them. You are missing one, you're missing all. They all go together. So, with that said, first, the who. Who accomplishes salvation? Now, these verses are phrased in the form of a prayer for the congregation, which is why it works pretty well as benediction in our services. Uh, but they're addressed specifically to the God of peace. And there are two different ways the implications here have been understood by commentators. Uh, simplest, simplest, maybe surface level, is that there was some division within the local congregation there, and so the author was emphasizing the God of peace is kind of a, hey, by the way, you guys, you're worshiping the God of peace, you should quit being divided amongst yourselves and be at peace together. Um, you know, and, and we can certainly imagine that those who were inclined to reject Christianity in favor of a return to temple worship might have had a bit of a struggle relating to those who were rejecting that idea completely and wanted to stay uh, with Christianity that they had been taught. That's an easy supposition and probably even has some truth in it. But as with so much in this book, the author is working on multiple levels. So yes, he is calling them to be at peace with each other on the basis of the character of the God who redeemed them. But as we've talked about before, peace in the Hebrew mind was a hugely significant concept, particularly when it was applied to God, and most especially when it was applied to God in the context of redemption. In the language of most of the Old Testament, Hebrew, the word that we translate as peace is shalom. You may have heard that before. Uh, I mentioned it before that it doesn't really line up super well with the English word. In English, Peace has a meaning of absence of conflict, right? Very simple. It's a light switch. Flip it on, flip it off. If you're not at war, then you're at peace. Real simple. The U.S. in November of 1941 was technically at peace, right? On the other hand, we've been sending shipments of supplies to the European allies for a couple of years at that point, and anyone who was paying attention could see that the war in the Pacific was ramping up. That it was coming. We, of course, we didn't know exactly when, but we could tell that it was ramping up and coming. But in November, we were technically at peace. In Hebrew, though, peace isn't simply a negative, the absence of conflict, though that is certainly a necessary component, peace of it. Instead, in addition to the absence of conflict, it is the presence of whole life unity, of cohesiveness a rest within oneself that manifests not only in outward actions, but also the inward call and confidence and trust and peace resting in the Lord. It is, on the one hand, something that can only be found with Christ in glory. On the other hand, we can get, it is something that we get a foretaste of now through our relationship with and trust in God and his character and his work in our lives. We can get a foretaste, the first hints 
of what that true shalom will be like in that day. In this verse, especially paired with the description that it was God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the one commentator put it, peace implies God's action for the salvation of the whole person. God's action for the salvation of the whole person. He, not, he is not merely redeeming our souls and discarding our bodies as if they were incurably tarnished, as if the physical self was part of the problem. Nor is he redeeming your body and giving you a new soul. For you, Christian, he is redeeming the entirety of you, body and soul perfectly united together. All of you bringing peace, not just between you and him, though he certainly does, not just between you and the world around you outside of you, although he does that as well, but even between you and yourself. He even brings peace between you and yourself in the constant war that we feel in our own hearts. He is the God who brings salvation to the whole person, the God of Shalom. But how is that accomplished? How does that God save? How does he apply that salvation us. Now, the blindingly obvious answer here, right, the blindingly obvious answer is that through Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, right? That's the obvious answer, and it's the right answer, too. But let's look more specifically, because there's some references here that are really easy to miss. Uh, you almost certainly know that shepherd is a very common image for Jesus and also for those whom he calls to uh, watch over his people. He uses Jesus uses that image for himself. He uses it himself, and it's repeatedly applied to him in the New Testament. What you may or may not know, have known is that the image it's in itself, the image of a shepherd, is a reference to the kings of God's people in the Old Testament. God pretty consistently refers to the kings of Israel, kings of his people, as shepherds of his people. The shepherd, of course, being the one who both rules over, but also cares for those given into his charge, both at the same time. Rules and cares. And is connected through the kings to God himself. We see this in Psalm 23, referring to God. His rod, his staff, comfort me. These are the implements that the shepherd would use to guide the sheep. Sometimes where they didn't particularly want to go, but to guide the sheep and to defend them, to fend off predators. So when Jesus is referred to and refers to himself as a shepherd, it is consciously putting him in the conversation with the kings of God's people and through them with God himself, of course. What you almost certainly don't know, however, is the deepest connection, the Old Testament deep cut, if you will, the, the B-side track that nobody else knows, but this is the really cool one, right? In Isaiah... Chapter 63. Let me flip over there and just read that. Isaiah 63, verses 10 and 11. But they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy, he, and he himself fought against them. Verse 11. Then he remembers the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea, out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? There is a specific reference here to Moses, who was called, who was understood, and was just a title for Moses was the shepherd of Israel. 
Now, if you've been following along through our study of Hebrews, you know that one of the major, perhaps the single major emphasis in this book is that Jesus is greater and better than Moses. That the covenant given to the people of God through Moses, that is the Levitical system, at least as they understood it around the time of Jesus, was not able to save them, but had in some sense ended with the death and the resurrection of Christ. The covenant given through Jesus, the new covenant it's sometimes called, is better because it actually accomplishes salvation. And because it is eternal, it will never pass away. It will never stop. It is complete. So Moses and all that he's associated with was called the shepherd of Israel. But here Jesus is called the great shepherd of Israel. More specifically, he's called the shepherd of Israel the great one. The way the words fit together in Greek puts the greatest emphasis on the word great. This is a conscious comparison between Jesus and Moses. Just as we've seen this author do repeatedly throughout this book. The language doesn't just emphasize that he is greater. It also tells us why he's greater. It is because of or by the means of the blood of the eternal covenant. Jesus is greater than Moses because he offers the once for all sacrifice, pouring out his blood in place of his people to win them all the blessings and benefits of salvation and shalom, whole life, unified peace with God. This is how he accomplishes your sanctification, Christian. Alongside your justification and your adoption and your, your glorification and all of that, it is finished in Christ's death and resurrection. It is done. He does it. Period. He does it, period. You receive growth in grace. You are made more and more after the image of Jesus. That is, your life looks more and more like his. You are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness and have that enabling actually stirred up in you to bring about their intended effect entirely because Jesus died in your place and rose again. You receive sanctification wholly from his hand. No less than you do justification or adoption or glorification. It is entirely because of his finished work on the cross in the empty tomb. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. Greater and better than Moses because he offers a finished work with no need of repetition. You don't need to offer sacrifices again and again and again. It is finished. It is entirely his work and once for all sufficient for all his people. Amen? Amen. Amen. But look at 20, verse 21. Because this prayer is set up, verse 20 is just a description of who he's praying to. Verse 21 is the actual prayer. He says, I pray that God would, verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. He stopped there. Despite all that we've just said about just, our sanctification, if we stopped there with the first clause of verse 21, we would be crushed. It says, I pray that God will equip you with everything good so that you may do his will. And by implication, that's all on you. He got you in by grace. Now you've got to keep yourself in by your work, by your effort. 
He's given you everything you need. You've got the ladder that he gave you. Now you just got to climb up out of that hole. If we stop there. But we don't. Yes, he is equipping us for the end goal that we would do his will, but he doesn't stop at just giving us the tools and then standing back and hoping that we use them right. That we figure it all out. He doesn't drop a ladder in a hole and let us choose how or if to make use of it. He works in you. He accomplishes in you that which he is pleased with. He calls you to be holy as he is holy. And, Christian, he equips you so that you can be holy as he is holy. And, but wait, there's more. And he not only calls you to be holy and equips you so that you can be holy, he actually does the holiness in you that he calls and equips you to do. He does it. Amen. He does it in and through you by his Holy Spirit at work in you. All three persons of the Trinity are actively working together in this passage and in your salvation. To bring about your salvation, your justification, your adoption, your sanctification, your glorification, all of it is his work. So rest in him. It is finished. And yet, he does this in a way that does not destroy your will. We pursue what is pleasing to him in the knowledge that in that pursuit, you are merely responding to what he has done and is doing through you. The only knowledge, uh, the only reason that you uh, care at all about pleasing the Lord, the only reason is because his Holy Spirit is leading you there. He's prompting that in you. The only reason that you hate your sin even a little bit, the only reason that you're embarrassed by it and want to get rid of it is because the Holy Spirit in you is killing it. Growing you in holiness in its place. But it's not mechanical as if you were a robot. Only able to do just what he wants you to do and nothing else. Just following a program. There's more that he plants life in you. Causes it to grow up in you and fill you so that you long to be what he wants you to be. To use a different metaphor, he woos us to himself. He draws us to himself. He doesn't override or crush our will. He convinces us. He draws us to himself. But in that, he also does the work to prompt in us so that we will be drawn to him without fail. He arranges he so arranges things that we are not just, that we are his not just because he purchased us, but because he draws us. We want to be his. And this brings us back to the idea that we started with. How are we to understand the hard things that happen in our lives, the, in the life of the corporate body maybe that he places us in? We know that he works all things for his own glory and for our good who are his children. So it must follow that even the hard things he allows because they accomplish that purpose, his glory and our good. The reality, of course, is that we have sin remaining in us. We are not fully cleansed of our sin. We are made holy in his sight. We are declared holy, and one day we will be fully without sin, but we're not there yet. We have sin remaining in us. We are declared righteous, and one day we will be exactly as righteous as we've been declared, but we're not there yet. Often the things that we face are either the result of our remaining sin showing up in our lives. Right? You've seen that happen. 
the griefs that we face sometimes are because we disobey. And lo and behold, look, the consequences of my actions. So he stirs up in us hard things so that we will see where we need to repent. But even if it's not our own sin, even if it's somebody else's sin against us, even then, stirring up the waters of our heart, as it were, stirring up, not so that we'll be crushed under the grief, under the weight of whatever it is, not so that we'll be crushed, but so that we'll run to him, so that we can repent, so that we can die to that sin more and more. Because even when somebody sins against me, my sin stirs up to the top. And my reaction to being sinned against is often sinful in itself. So even if I am innocent of the original sin, my sin still boils to the top. I see what I need. He leads us to that. Again, not so that we'll be crushed, so that we can repent, so that we can grow in holiness, so that we can die more and more to that sin and live more and more to his Righteousness, Sure, we'd all like lives that are just calm and placid and nothing ever gets stirred up and it's all easy all the time. We'd all prefer that, right? That'd be great. But if we are to recognize the areas where we are least like him, then we must see those dark corners of our hearts and minds. If everything is placid, that muck, that nastiness stays down on the bottom. We don't ever see it. We think we're doing pretty well. They can't be corrected. They can't be repented of. And so he stirs it up, stirs us up, shakes our lives, and then leads us to repent. The muck comes up from the depths of our hearts to where we can see it and smell the stench. And by his grace, he walks us into repentance. Everything that happens in your life happens to make you more and more lighter to make you more holy, to lead you to trust him more. Right? Don't hear what I'm not saying. That is not to minimize the pain of encountering your own sin. Certainly not to minimize the pain of being harmed by someone else's sin. Those are grievous. They are not good in themselves. That is a real grief, but it is not a pointless God in his sovereignty uses that wickedness to accomplish his good ends. If you are in Christ, he is working holiness in you. He is, through the work of his Holy Spirit in your life, accomplishing in you what is pleasing in his sight. He is making you holy. He's doing it. When the hard times come, whether sin is bubbling up in your life or persecution raining down, when the hard times come, let's lean into trusting him more. He has proved that he is faithful, that he is trustworthy, that he can handle it and will take care of us. May not be comfortable. Probably won't be comfortable if we're being faithful to him. But he is trustworthy. We can lean into trusting him more in the sure and certain knowledge that he has not, does not, and will not ever abandon us who are his children. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is steadfast. 
Trust him, even with the hard things. Pray to God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace to us, that you do walk with us even in the hard things, that you use even the awfulness that we bring into our lives by our sin, that others pour on our lives by their sin. You use even the awfulness of that to draw us to yourself, to make us more holy. Father, we pray that you would make us, cause us to trust you more today than we did yesterday. To trust, uh, trust you more tomorrow than we do today, next year than we do this year, on and on. Whatever you bring into our lives, whether it is grief or persecution or joy or whatever, let us run to you in faith. And give you all the praise as you remake us. In the image of your son Jesus. Thank you for your work. I pray all this in Jesus' name.